So a couple things. You've got an insert in your bulletin. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 104, so there's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have your own. We discussed a few weeks ago that the Bible will often try to open us up to larger vistas, right? Some of us have the view that, that the gospel or, the, or God's word constricts us, right? It tells us what we can't do. It limits us. Uh, it puts parameters around us. And while that's certainly true, I think the reason the Bible does that is to open us up into a much more enriching way of being in the world. So... Uh, what we talked about a few weeks ago is what I'm calling Psalms in the Key of Creation. And one of the ways that the Bible will do us, uh, will do that to snap us out of our funk, to uh, awaken us to the people around us, to awaken us to God, is by focusing on God's glory and God's majesty. One of the things I find interesting as a reader of the Bible and as a student of our culture is that's the exact opposite of what our culture does. Our culture will try to put you at the center of the universe. And even sometimes that sneaks into our thinking about God. We have uh, the idea that we're special. Um, and I think that that's true in some way in the sense that we're created in God's image. Actually, what the Bible does is tries to point us toward the glory and the majesty and the supremacy of God. Not about how special we are, or how important we are in God's purposes. So I always like to take my cues from the Bible where I can, and this is yet another example in Psalm 104, where the psalmist is trying to open God's people up to all the diversity of God's creation, to focus on the splendor, um, the majesty of God, and the power of him in creation. So with that, we're going to turn to Psalm 104. And if you look in verse 1, and then again in verse 35, can you find a phrase that's repeated there? Bless the Lord, O my soul. We sang it this morning. Now, that repeated phrase takes place once at the beginning, and then again at the end. Now, if... Wow. I had a whole slide there. It had more words on it, even this morning. Oh, there we go. If we go back one, perfect. Thank you. I didn't think I cut it off right there. But when the Bible does this, it takes place at the beginning and it takes place at the very end of the psalm. And if you think that's done on purpose, which it is, what might that say about everything in the middle? What is it related to? related to praising the Lord. So the question the thoughtful reader has to ask is how is everything in between related to the praise and worship of God? Um, and this happens actually a lot in the Old Testament. So when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what that means is the heavens and the earth are the two extremes, and it means that and everything in between. It doesn't mean that God just made heaven and just made earth it means that he made those and everything in between. Or when God makes a covenant, he'll say, I call heaven and earth as witnesses to the covenant. He's not saying just heaven and just earth. He's saying he's calling all of creation uh, to uh, witness the covenant. And here, 
At the very beginning and at the very end, he's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then everything in between is related to praise and to worship. So when we listen to this psalm, we're supposed to ask ourselves, what does this have to do with worship, right? What am I supposed to be incorporating into worship? How can I view this material as instructing my worship? And how are the ideas contained here related to worship? So this is a conversation we actually had at dinner because I always run ideas by my kids to see uh, if, they're, if they're tracking with it. So we just pick some individual verses there and say, how is this related to worship? What does this say about God? What does it say about worship? How does this speak to how we should worship? So as we turn our attention to Psalm 104 itself, we're going to give kind of the 10,000-foot overview. We're going to summarize each section, and then we're going to dig into a few specific verses. But the key thing that you need to take away from this is it is all about worship. That is not what I find to be a common thing in our culture. Um, The idea that we are uh, unique and we focus all of our attention on our problems is in a lot of ways the opposite of what the Bible does. And it'll feel kind of strange. Like I should be standing here telling you Uh, how special you are and how unique and how you're God's special snowflake. The problem with that is the Bible. What the Bible does when God's people are in hard places is it points to the majesty and power of God. It doesn't point to us. So it seems a little weird. It'll feel a little bit weird. I'm not saying you're not created in God's image. You're all special to somebody. But what the Bible does is tries to point us to the Lord. So we really want to do that this morning. And I think what we find is the more we're focused on the majesty and splendor of God, the more our problems, we view them for what they are, right? We're not obsessed by them. We're not overcome by them. We see that God is powerful to act. God is enthroned above creation, uh, and he is to be exalted even in the midst of our circumstances. So the first uh, section, verses 1 to 4, I think you could probably summarize just by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, for the Lord is enthroned above creation. Now, this might be the duh moment for a bunch of us here. We're sitting in church. At least in theory, we're going to subscribe to the fact that God is enthroned above all things. Even the Awana Cubbies would be able to tell you uh, that God is enthroned above all things. But what does it mean, actually, that God is enthroned above all of creation? Why is this a praiseworthy thing uh, for the psalmist? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves, not questions I'm necessarily going to speak to. But God controls all things, everything in creation, and also our individual circumstances. What are the implications for that for your week? Right? We're going to walk out of here, we're going to step back into the world tomorrow, and the world is not a friendly place for our worldview, frankly. Uh, there's a lot of darkness, there's um, a lot of spiritual darkness, a lot of oppression, a lot of things that will try to captivate you away from the Lord. So what does it mean that God is enthroned above everything? Um, whatever else we might say, it's a reason for the psalmist to praise, right? and that should be our first response. God is enthroned above creation. The next one is that 
God establishes boundaries in creation. And I know that your first thought is, praise the Lord for that. (laughs) We don't actually think of God establishing boundaries in creation as a praiseworthy thing. But what does it make you think of, at least in the Bible? If you look at Genesis 1-2, which is also... When God creates, what does he do? Are there any Awana cubbies in the house? God separates land from water. He establishes boundaries. He tells the sea how far it can go. Now, that might not be terribly meaningful for us as thoughtful modern people, but we're not really under imminent threat of a tsunami right now. Like, I didn't wake up this morning and think it's going to be trouble. God sets boundaries for creation. It can't go to a certain point. Now, in a fallen world, there's the occasional hiccup, obviously. Tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes. But the psalmist is saying that God has established a fundamental order to things. Praise the Lord that we live on a stable earth. Not that you're special, you live on a stable earth. Now, if you have conditions like vertigo, or I was just having the conversation about roller coasters because something seems to have happened to me at the subatomic level that I can't ride them anymore, or I have to weigh the option of knowing that afterward it's going to be unpleasant for me, and how good a ride will it be uh, to, such to make it worth um, the aftermath, to put it politely. Um, But if you live with a condition like that, just dizziness and the sense of instability, you might be able to praise the Lord for the stability of the earth, right? And this isn't our framework, right? Even now, you're thinking, well, who cares? Because we take it for granted. And the psalmist here is trying to compel us, bless the Lord, O my soul, that we live on a stable earth created by God who made it stable, praise the Lord for that. So even if there's nothing else in all of creation to praise the Lord for, we can focus on the stability of our planet. So if you look at verses uh, 6 to 8, it says, You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valley smoke. Uh, the valley sank down to the places which you established for them. It says that God is powerful over all that he's made, and he's established boundaries uh, in creation. And again, this is a reason for praise and worship, and it should be not just for the psalmist, but for all of God's people. God has established boundaries in creation. Next, we move to verses 10 to 17. And again, this is the 10,000-foot overview. These are my summaries. Um, So you can go back and read the psalm for the specifics. There's really interesting phrases in there, uh, things that you wouldn't think the Bible considers, but it's just wicked fun to read. But it says, The Lord provides for all that he has made. Now, I won't hijack the sermon by going on my environmental kick, but there's a lot there about how God provides for all things all things. Now, we instantly rush right in and say, right, God provides for human beings. Well, it says he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. 
the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. God provides for all that he's made. And if you look on that insert in the, uh, in the bulletin, I think that Jesus picks this up in Matthew 6 when he says, Consider the lilies. They neither toil nor spin, but not even Solomon in all his splendor was as awesome as one of these. And how much more will God provide for human beings if even a flower of the field will be provided for so magnificently, right? So Jesus is trying to teach them not to be anxious, but to look at all that God's made, to see that he provides for all that he's made, not just human beings, but for everything. Again, points to God's power over everything, including our circumstances. Now, what's interesting here is that God is not just massive, right? The psalmist isn't just interested in the massiveness of God. He praises the Lord for his power in ordering all things, but also praises the Lord for the details, right? God's not just omni, 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 big show up top, not really interested in the day-to-day operations. God's not just the big vision guy, and then he's looking for other, other people to implement the vision. God's interested in both, Right? Nothing escapes his view. He causes the grass to grow uh, for the cattle. He causes vegetation for human beings. It says the trees drink their fill. Um, high mountains for the goats. There are cliffs as a refuge. I'm not quite sure what this animal is. My little footnote says conies, the shephanim, I believe it's pronounced. And you're not quite sure. They're little rabbit-like creatures. Even those get considered by the Almighty. And Jesus picks this same train of thought up in Matthew 6. It's not just an OT idea, right? Jesus picks this up and says, we shouldn't be anxious because God provides for all that he's made. And again, the refrain should be, bless the Lord, O my soul. Next, in verses 18 to 23, The Lord establishes order of days and seasons. Now, I'm not going to fully nerd out on you yet, but I have chosen to live in the Northeast. I love it more than anywhere. I think that the seasons are awesome. I just think they're great. I think that snow is awesome. I was bordering on clinical depression this winter because I just stared longingly at my cross-country skis and no opportunity to use them. I know you're all excited about the lack of shoveling, and that's good too, but even the shoveling of snow, at least for the first nine blizzards, is pretty cool stuff, right? And it really was brought home to me by the fact, my lack of appreciation for it, um, by the fact that my sister moved to the south and they didn't get anything. So my nephews are always, like, they can scrape together mud and the little bit of snow that they get to try to, you know, make snowballs. And when they come and it snows, it's just awesome. Like, they, they just so appreciate it. They love it. They spend hours outside building forts and tunnels and 
throwing snowballs and running inside crying when they get hit in the face with one and then running right back out. Like they, they just really appreciate that because they don't have it. So it makes me uh, grateful that we live here. Summer, not too bad. Spring is lovely. This time of year is just excellent. Like the whole thing. People drive from all over to see our leaves. Right? <laughs> Why would they do that? Because uh, it's awesome, right? You wouldn't find that everywhere. So the fact that God ordains days and seasons is a praiseworthy thing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, that you establish days and season. Now, the psalmist isn't talking about leaf peeping. I get, I'm, I'm sort of throwing that in there myself because I am an avid watcher of creation and, and love every season. Which season is my favorite? Whatever one we're currently in. Like, it's just all good. Uh, Cynthia is the same way. We like the colors of the trees, and my neighbor has this really interesting, um, I don't know what it was. I, I heard that if there's a lot of snowfall, it might like alter the way that the leaves are colored. I heard if there's no snowfall, it's just kind of all over the place. It's like, um, it's going to be a really hot summer, or it's going to be a really cold summer. Let's just keep talking about it till after summer's over. Because it was supposed to be a really snowy winter. Um, and I am trying not to let my bitterness come out. But it wasn't. Um, but I'm kind of importing that all myself. What the psalmist says is that God has separated things in terms of day and night. So he focuses again on provision. If you look at verses 18 to 23, look at verse 20. It says, You appoint darkness and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. So by ordaining the seasons and day and night as he has, God has again provided for all that he's made. And it seems to be, if, I, if I'm reading this correctly, when the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. And then man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. So I think... What he's saying there is that we don't have to necessarily worry about lions as we go out to, to work the fields. That God's ordered it that way, right? That they prowl at night, get their food, which they receive, I believe, with gratitude from God. Um, and then during the day, they kind of go away and we come out and there's this nice little symphony of, of creation. And again, the underlying theme there is that God is powerful and he provides. He's infinite in scope but also interested in the details. And I can't speak for you, but there are weeks uh, like this where I just, I really do praise the Lord for that. That in the midst of the chaos of working with human beings, there's an underlying order to what God has made. And sometimes, I gotta be honest with you, the only evidence for it is in the ground. <laughs> like sometimes, I, 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 don't, I hope I'm not too jaded here, but sometimes the only sign of hope uh, is the lilac. <laughs> that keeps happening. Like resurrection is built into the DNA of the universe. Sometimes with your work, you're working with people, you don't quite get that same, that same vibe of hopefulness. There's fits and starts, and uh, you know, I, I don't mean to be bitter about that. But all of it can be considered. When you consider frustrating encounters with people, we know that there's a God who orders all things. And he establishes the order of the days and the seasons. The next is where I'm going to totally nerd out on you. If I haven't nerded out on you yet, this is where it's going to happen. The Bible actually talks about the amazing diversity of what God has made. 
take a minute to let that sink in. So one of the really cool things about creation is the incredible diversity. There's not just one thing, even though there could be, right? There are strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, prunes, figs, peaches, apples, all of it. There could just be figs. And I know from, you know, the whole manna thing, if there was just that, then I would have to accept it with gratitude, uh, thankfulness to the Lord that he provided anything. Like, that was the sin of Israel in the wilderness. They just wanted more than the manna. And I get that. If that was all that there was, then we'd be forced to be grateful for it. But there's just this endless diversity to what God has made. And what the psalmist is focusing on is actually the, the diversity of the sea creatures. Now, in case at this point you're saying, like, who cares? <laughs> this feels weird to us because we are not naturally inclined to do this, to look at the world with joy and wonder and to praise the Lord for all that he's made. We don't do this naturally. But when we listen to psalms in the key of creation, can you think about how that might make your life different? And I'm going to call a 20-second timeout here. How might this affect your life? I know you've had all of about eight seconds to think about it. But how might this affect your life? If what the psalmist is saying is true, that we should be praising the Lord for all of these things, what difference does it make? Okay. Positive attitude. I got no problem with that. <laughs> I think we could use a little bit more tree hugging, frankly, but I'll, I'll stop there. And my point here is not the environmental hijacking, though I think that that's assumed here. If you want to kind of frame your thinking about the diversity of, of creation, species, extinction, and to think about those things, the psalmist here is praising the Lord for the diversity of sea life. So it's not a terrible thing to include in my thinking about the diversity of what God's made. And there should be an underlying gratitude. And how would that affect my day? How would that affect the next 24 hours if I entered every single conversation, meeting, scenario, praising the Lord for all that he's made? I think that'd have a huge effect. And the reason I think it would is because it's not about us. That's really the pitfall of our culture. We just can't stop thinking about ourselves. What about my needs? Like, once you kind of open up into this whole different world where God is exalted above everything, Scripture constantly attests to his greatness and his majesty, God considers us as stewards, right? Psalm 8 does talk about uh, how human beings created in God's image are a little bit lower than God. But I think that it would make a huge difference if we just stopped focusing so much on ourselves and let the Bible set the tone for how we think. Chris, you had a... Right. Um, I was challenged by the example of Steve's cousin a couple weeks ago, like when he saw the, uh, the lilacs. They were, he's on a walk for water and kind of buried his face in the, uh, in the lilac 
bush, which it's really just sad now that lilacs are wilting. But there's just an endless number of ways you can do this, right? If you want to really get practical, this is as practical as I get. If you're walking right here in our own city of Manchester between Jewett Street and Porter on Weston, you're coming up from South Willow. You got to be outside the car to smell it, but it's really, really worth it. Uh, there's this really interesting tree that smells like wonderful. Nothing, nothing quite like it. And I can never remember when I go home from my run because it wouldn't. <laughs> tree with white leaves smells good. Like I don't even know what kind of tree it is, uh, but it it just makes me want to stop and think. Wow, this. There's a pleasant smell when there could have been an unpleasant one. Like, I could have run over a dead skunk or something. Like, I can tell you which I prefer. Uh, usually, I kind of freak out because I don't see the skunk until the last minute. I, like, jump to the other side of the street because I just don't want to step on a dead skunk. Sorry, full, full disclosure. Um, but that's actually something that you could do that's practical because you're outside, you're exercising, you're breathing fresh air, and because we're Christians— because we believe, we can exalt the Creator for that. That's where the unbelievers really stuck. Now, they may find the smell pleasant. They may find creation beautiful, but they have nobody to thank for it. That's the real downfall for the unbeliever. But for us, we take all of that And we know that there's a creator behind it all. He created it on purpose, created it good, created it good, seven times over, very good. He looks back on all that he's made and says, that's awesome. Just awesome. And that's what it is. So, anyway, end of, hopefully, end of nerd portion. Uh, So, admire the diversity. There's just a lot of it. And then finally, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, for the Lord is powerful over all that he's made. This is how the psalm ends. Again, God is powerful over all that he's made. He provides for his people. He provides for all things. And he's powerful over it. So I think, just to summarize, what we have here are the words of the psalmist And the nice thing here is there's not really, like the Psalms kind of invite you to jump around. You don't have to necessarily understand Psalm 103 in order to understand 104. It's like a self-contained thing. And we don't know who wrote it, and we can speculate endlessly about who wrote it, but you know what? It doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter who wrote it. Does it matter what their circumstances were? Apparently not, because God didn't preserve it. It doesn't matter what their circumstances were. Do you know what that means? That it can be applied to any circumstance. And it doesn't matter who wrote it or what they were going through at the time. It is God's word living and active and it can be applied to anything. There is not a single circumstance where you can't exalt God as the creator. Where it doesn't apply. So we're looking at this psalmist here who looks at the glory of God uh, through the lens of everything that he's made. And it's meant to reorient our vision. So I'm going to ask the question again, how could our circumstances compare with the glory of God? Who really wants to stand before the creator and say that next to your majesty, my circumstances are really important? And I think that's what's meant to happen, not to denigrate anybody, not to make them feel bad or selfish or any of that. You just find that in the splendor 
of the Almighty, our circumstances just dissolve. He's powerful over creation, over all that he's made. So the psalmist expresses simple joy uh, for God's power and might, for his ability to provide for everything, and for the order that they find in the seasons, for the diversity of what God has made, and that there's a single being in the universe who brought that all about. Now, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit uh, and turn from the simple joy and wonder to the so-called real world. Uh, We might admire the psalmist's naive joy. You might get a good chuckle about the fact that I really would stop the car to get out and smell uh, the buds on that tree. Like that, it seems kind of silly, naive. uh, And we can look at that in the psalms, the diversity of the sea creatures. We can look at that and and admire the zeal. But we know better. Um, It doesn't make much difference to us in the rough and tumble of our daily experiences. And I think the problem for us, among the problems, like the Israelites before us, is that we're just so sophisticated. Right? Uh, So Israel was quick. You know Israel's story, right? They're they're under oppression in Egypt, and God delivers them through mighty acts of judgment. He delivers them from Egypt and brings them out and makes them a people. They are made a nation of, by the Lord. But one of the things about them and us is they tend to forget those humble origins and they tend to turn pretty quickly like the other nations. So they enter into foreign alliances that God just isn't really a part of, right? Instead of relying on God, exalting him as creator, obeying his law, they turn to the king of Assyria. God's not powerful enough. We've got we've to make an alliance here. So they're, they're pretty sophisticated. In their uh, expression of worship, there's the obvious worship of idols. Um, and then there's the more subtle mistreatment of each other. Like, this is what Israel does over time. They start to worship idols. And inevitably what that does is it lowers their view of God, and then it lowers their view of each other. They start to abuse each other economically. They oppress their neighbor They make them enter into debt, and then they hold it against them. They look for ways to manipulate the people around them. So when your view of God is lowered, your view of other people uh, is also lowered. And we're not different. Um, We might look at the Israelites a long way off and think that we're different, but they forgot. They forgot that they were once slave people. And that they should not be enslaving one another because God delivered them from that. But, low view of God, low view of people. God's not the creator. I'm too sophisticated for that idea, right? And if we quickly transition to the modern world, there's a tendency for us also to forget our humble origins. Nobody here that I've met, myself included, really is somebody that God needs on their team, right? There's no, I was about to say Derek Jeter, I apologize. Wow, that was a New England slip. I was in New York last weekend. I watch a lot of Mets baseball. I do apologize for for bringing up the name of Derek Jeter. But nobody here is just indispensable to the team. We tend to forget uh, the humility 
of our origins. And Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were wise. (laughs) You weren't a first-round draft pick by God. It doesn't mean you're not created in his image, but uh, you're not the LeBron James of the church, or Steph Curry, I guess now, because the finals are going on. I was just so hoping for Oklahoma City, just because Kevin Durant seems like such a good guy. But I guess that's not how basketball games are decided, by niceness. Um, So, anyway. So there's a tendency to forget humble origins. Now, none of us today are going home to worship a wooden statue, right? That's obvious. None of us are going to go home and do that. But at the same time, this week... If you're thoughtful and if your eyes are open, there are an infinite number of ways that the enemy will try to draw you away from the Lord. And they're all subtle. None of them look bad. The Bible describes that angel, uh, uh, Satan comes, uh, I'll get the word, disguised as an angel of light. Meaning that it's not going to be the red pajamas, tail, and horns tempting you away from the Lord. It's not going to be that obvious. Uh, it's going to be much more subtle. And we're going to be tempted to build our identity on other things. So whenever Israel and whenever we stray from the simple joy and wonder at the greatness of God, I think we're in a pretty dangerous place. We're either going to be prone to think that we're God or we'll start to look for other things that we're going to find our ultimate fulfillment in. We're going to take our eyes off the Lord of heaven and earth who made all things, who established order in creation, who made a diverse planet. We're going to stray from those things and we're going to think that we can build our identity on ourselves. Now on your insert there, I have a a series of questions and I, I apologize if they're too heady and and philosophical for you. But I think I think one of the plagues of our culture is our inattention. So, something like Facebook. We're everywhere and we're nowhere. Right? I can send an email to Sergio Maza, he's one of our missionaries in the Comoros Islands, halfway around the world, like that. In previous generations, that just wasn't the case. Now, in a lot of cases, that's a very positive thing. I can see pictures of family. There's a lot of really positive functions of that. I know there's some sensitive souls sitting here thinking they have to delete their Facebook page. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, it makes us jaded because we're trying to put forward the best possible image of ourselves. Look how happy we all are in this picture. And I don't mean to mock like family, family pictures. We're just not really good. Uh, with, what's the opposite of candid? Like none of our pictures of the kids are really posed because we just don't come out good like that. It just really looks awkward. But I admire on some level the people that like, hey, look, it's bright and shiny and we're sitting in this hallway in matching outfits and everybody's just spontaneously happy at the same time. And we're all laughing about something, right? Those are, are great, but we're putting forward this best possible version of ourselves. And even subconsciously, we know that that's not what our life is. I'm not saying you have to post all the, all the darkness on Facebook, but at the same time, it kind of erodes um, 
it erodes a healthy view of the world. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Russell Moore. You might want to write that name down, go home and Google it. He just wrote an article recently about how we gather for corporate worship and how we view things on Facebook, that we come together and, and how's it going? And your response would be, good, great, awesome. And we pretend. And he's saying how that just erodes people's self-confidence. I'll leave that there. But what we also have is an access to an infinite amount of information, right? Most, if not all of you, are walking around with a device in your pocket that previous generations would marvel at. And what that does is gives you access to the Google and to Wikipedia. And if we don't know the title of a song or the name of a show, now what we do is we get, I have to say, we get a little jaded by that, do we not? We have this kind of impress me mentality. We're hypercritical of things, right? Because we exist to be entertained. And that's the exact opposite of what the psalmist is saying here. So we're always in this fight. We're always in this struggle to fight against that jaded cynicism and to live in the simple joy of the existence of a God who created all things. Another question might be, do we know the cost of everything and the value of nothing? Are people just sport to us? Do we have a low view of God and that gives us a low view of people so that when we gossip, it's okay because that other person's just a thing anyway, right? That's what happened in Israel's case. Low view of God, low view of people. Exalted view of God, all of a sudden things change. I'm not going to be so petty, I hope. I'm not going to make those remarks because I feel like I have to justify my existence or make myself feel better by tearing another person down. I can look at Psalms like this and I can say that God is exalted because he made all things. There's nobody who's ever going to come close to as impressive as that, so I don't need to try. And I don't need to build my identity on making myself feel better at the expense of others. And how does the Bible reorient our vision? To me, it's simple but really difficult because it becomes a discipline. Uh, If Psalm 104 serves as the roadmap, the Bible will reorient our vision around the greatness of the Lord. That's going to be fundamental to who we are. We're going to build our identity on the greatness of God. And we're going to view all of reality through the lens of the Creator who makes all reality possible. I left a couple passages on there because I think that the New Testament's vision of God as the creator becomes much more specific. You can look up those passages, right? We're not left with the pie in the sky, but Jesus actually becomes the face uh, of creation. That God, through Jesus, is the one who made all this. So what's true about the Lord is true about Jesus here. And then some opportunities for you to reflect and opportunities for us to have conversations with each other. What might we do as God's people to foster this view of the world, which is thoroughly biblical, right? Not about us, but about the creator. And I think the more I read the Bible, the more I look through Psalms, the Bible is trying to reorient our vision to God as creator, but also to God as redeemer. It's always about the glory of God. And I think we might see some impact 
if we were to focus on, on those things. So that's my prayer for you this week, honestly, uh, that you'll find some simple joy in something and that that becomes an occasion for you to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray.